And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, August 28th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of The Federal Drive, Justice Department false claims cases continue at a brisk pace. Plus, HUD is way behind in a crucial data-sharing anti-fraud portal. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, today marks the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. This is where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. But it was also a springboard for the passage of major civil rights legislation and even spurred creation of a couple of new federal agencies. In commemoration of the march, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman sat down last week with four civil rights leaders in government. She joins me now with what she learned here. And Drew, maybe for those of you, I remember the March on Washington, but a little history of what happened there and how it did change things. This was a major civil rights event that occurred in 1963 on August 28th. So today's the 60th anniversary, as you said. And this was the gathering of 250,000 people on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It was a grassroots event organized by advocacy groups, religious groups, civil rights organizations, including the NAACP, among many others. And the overarching goal of the march was to protest racial discrimination, which was, of course, very prevalent across the country at the time, especially against African-Americans. And this came in direct response as well to some violent attacks that occurred against civil rights protesters in Birmingham, Alabama. But generally, it was also to show support for a major piece of civil rights legislation that was at the time pending in Congress. That was the Civil Rights Act, which is a bill intended to end discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, whether that's in schools, public bathrooms workplace. That was, of course, passed the following year in 1964. So this march had a lot of resonating effects through history in the federal government specifically as well. And as you mentioned, it created several new agencies and federal offices inside some existing agencies too. Yeah, it was an interesting time in history because Martin Luther King Jr. was dealing with Lyndon Johnson because it was only not that many months after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And so it was a different political calculus. And it was really Johnson that ran with the legislation that Some to this day think Kennedy could have pushed a little harder, but yet it did happen, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And of course, this was prior to Vietnam coming widely on the conscience of the country. That was still a few years off. Let's talk about the work at these agencies, EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Justice Department got some roles there. How does this all relate back to that march? Well, if you take EEOC, for example, that was an agency that came arguably as a direct result of the March on Washington. It was created in 1965 as the agency to enforce what was called Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, protecting individuals against workplace discrimination. And similarly, in the then Department of Health, Education and Welfare, the Office of Civil Rights was created as part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as well, focusing on schools and discrimination in schools. But interestingly, the Justice Department's, their civil rights division came out a couple years earlier. Kristen Clark, who's assistant attorney general in the DOJ's civil rights division, said that the march still made a major impact on that division. But frankly, it took the march which spurred Congress to adopt new laws, new robust robust laws with teeth that truly empowered the Civil Rights Division to be able to do the work that it does today. Since January of 2021, we have prosecuted over 105 law enforcement officers who 
uh, violate people's civil rights, fighting for racial justice and racial equity really lies at the core of our enforcement work in the Civil Rights Division. And Drew, in your discussions with these folks, they gave you some examples of how these civil rights departments are actually still working on the same initial message that came from that march so many years ago. Right. The work, of course, directly ties back to the March on Washington, the Civil Rights Act. But that vision has also expanded more things like discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or discrimination against individuals with disabilities. These weren't really things that were thought of or at least mentioned during the time of the March in Washington back in the 60s. But now, of course, that's a big focus, for example, at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Interestingly, also just this year, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act took effect, and that's something that EEOC is accepting charges for as well for workplace discrimination over at the Department of Education. Catherine Lehman, who's assistant secretary in in their office of civil rights, she said discrimination in schools still exists currently, but of course it's in slightly different forms. They're focused on speeding up the process for investigating charges. Even just a couple of weeks ago, she had mentioned that they had an investigation take place within 67 days rather than historically that can sometimes and even still now take years to take effect. So those are a couple of things that they're working on right now. Now, the Biden administration's executive orders advancing racial equity, they still tie in here too. What in your conversations did you hear that that's changing expectations now for agencies in the latter day now. The idea here from, interestingly, from that executive order is that it's really expanding the goals of civil rights and racial equity, advancing racial equity to be a responsibility of all agencies, not just the civil rights related agencies, once directly tied to, for example, the Civil Rights Act. That new executive order, there was one in 2021 and then another one issued earlier this year. And it's basically focusing on working within agencies, training, leadership development in racial equity, trying to reduce administrative administrative burdens and federal programs for communities that are typically underserved or historically underserved. Also updating equity action plans. There was an initial requirement in the first executive order, and that's now something that agencies, all agencies are expected to update on an annual basis to kind of reflect how racial equity is, is changing over time. Jenny Yang, who's deputy assistant to the president for racial justice and equity in the White House, explained the reason behind those executive orders. That we all must prioritize and focus on equity, racial equity, and all equity in all its forms has made a powerful difference. Because agencies, and I've seen it firsthand from my time at Department of Labor, where I was director of the Office of Contract Compliance, as well as in my role now at the White House, but agencies across the government are doing things differently because the president said it it was, it is, and remains a priority. Agencies that didn't necessarily think their job was equity now understand that it is. All right. And again, from your discussions at the EEOC the other day, what were some of the takeaways from that commemoration? What are agencies trying to carry forward from the March initial goals? Generally speaking, it's, you know, there's a lot of progress has been made in the 60 years since the march occurred. But of course, work is still to be done. There's always going to be work for these agencies in civil rights. And it's just something, you know, they're trying to be a little bit more proactive, more quick and efficient in trying to handle a lot of these cases that that do occur. But generally, the feeling was the commemoration is sort of a call to action for agencies to look back and remember, but also kind of carry forward that message with them. And Equal Employment Opportunity Commission Chairwoman Charlotte Burroughs took away this message of passing the torch forward. I think they wanted to leave us with the vision that this was an ongoing process 
and an invitation to carry it on. I would also say that jobs were at the crux, at the center of what they were trying to do. Denial of the opportunity to work and work fairly was really at the heart of it, and the jobs part is us at the EOC in part. And so we take heart from that, frankly, and I'm just humbled to be doing that. And as you said, the EEOC was a direct consequence of that. And that's EEOC Chairwoman Charlotte Burroughs. And we've been speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. Check out her coverage, and there's also a photo gallery from the event that she moderated at the EOC. You can find it all at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, HUD is way behind on a crucial data-sharing anti-fraud portal. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Housing and urban development is one of something like 30 agencies that have a hand in disaster recovery. In trying to avoid duplicating benefits to disaster victims, in 2017, HUD started work on a data portal, a place where grantees would load information on benefits they've already received so HUD could see it. HUD's Office of Inspector General has found the data portal is only partially completed. This six years later, the OIG also found questions about whether the portal is a high enough priority for HUD's technology staff. Joining me in studio to sort it all out, HUD Inspector General Ray Oliver Davis. Ms. Davis, good to have you in. Hi, Tom. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And I was trying to study the wiring of all of this disaster recovery data reporting, and I had trouble tracing it. So maybe just give us a little bit of the context of where this data portal that HUD is building fits into this whole picture. Sure, I'll do my best with that because it is complex. I think you're right to point that out. Well, first and foremost, you know, you and I have talked about several times, I think, the the vast mission of HUD. And I don't know, maybe before this report, some people didn't even recognize that HUD played a part in disaster recovery, but they do. You pointed out the 30 agencies, somewhat 30 federal agencies that contribute to this. Of course, FEMA being the biggest, the largest, SBA, people probably recognize they have a role as well. And then HUD comes down the line with what we call unmet need and now also mitigation. So how can we mitigate against disasters in the future? In terms of this tool and reporting, this is a data warehouse that grantees theoretically already have access to because they're already using it to report their data into HUD. So HUD keeps track of them that way. The grantees are not necessarily the disaster victims, but housing authorities or... Correct. Okay, that's that's a that's a very good thing to point out. First of all, the way HUD administers this funding is it's given to HUD through a supplemental appropriation from Congress, and then it's passed to grantees. It's a block grant, which means that the grantee is typically a municipality, a state, that type of entity. And then it's decentralized because to carry out the disaster recovery and relief, they have to further give money to other subgrantees, recipients, and even individuals, those being the beneficiaries, as you said. Yes, certainly. Right. So then the purpose of this data portal then is to help everyone make sure that people get what they have coming under the law, but not double benefits or duplicative benefits. Sure. We call it duplication of benefits. We're looking to see if an individual or an entity has gotten money beyond what their need is, a windfall, so to speak. And the grantees are tasked with that. That's set out in statute. It's set out in their grant agreements with the department. So on top of grantees safeguarding resources, making sure they have infrastructure, looking at the eligibility of beneficiaries. They also have to make sure that they are guarding the funds in a way that they go to the intended person. And one entity or one individual doesn't get more than they're supposed to get. Yes, that's right. All right. So what is HUD supposed to be doing here? What's the project you actually looked at? 
So this is a plan to automate the transfer of data from FEMA, which is the largest entity that participates in disaster recovery, and they usually go first, and get that data to the grantees, you know, get the most current data, get the most real-time data, to ensure that this is not an overly burdensome process. You know, you look at the position of grantees in, this is a time of crisis. We're also dealing with a remarkable amount of money. I mean, between 2015 and 2021, HUD got $47 billion between 2015 and 2021. And now here we are, 2023, we're looking at $100 billion that goes to HUD alone. Right. And all you have to do is look at what's happening in Hawaii to get some sense of how this process works and how expensive it can be. It is. And, you know, thinking about where people are in the moment when this funding is getting out, think about what they're dealing with. We saw that in, frankly, the pandemic with the CARES Act funding. You know, grantees got a tremendous amount of money all of a sudden that maybe they didn't have the capacity to oversee. But yes, there's a lot going on. It's a critical time for beneficiaries and grantees. At the same time, they're trying to do the best they can to build their infrastructure and safeguard the funds against improper payments, fraud, and any kind of improper duplication of benefits. Yes. All right. So this was started in 2017, and Congress directed HUD to build this automated portal and to keep it a priority. Mm -hmm. What is the status of it, actually? Well, as you point out, it was conceptualized in 2017 and tested. I am waiting for my most recent update on this. We did anticipate that there might be completion in June of this year, but that's come and gone. The big thing that we're waiting on is for HUD to award the contract. When they first started down this path with this plan, they were planning on leveraging an existing contract vehicle that they had with GSA. They learned that contract vehicle was going to terminate, was going to lapse before the completion of the project. So now they've had to award a brand new contract. So that's really what we're waiting for here. We're speaking with Ray Oliver Davis. She's Inspector General of Housing and Urban Development. Well, if the project was started in 2017, what do they do between now and then if there's no contract? That's a good question. So a number of things are, are, are at play there. First, you know, we had some staff turnover, both at HUD, people who were focused on this project. We had staff turnover at the contract level. The contract itself, you know, this idea of leveraging the existing contract and now looking for a new one, that's something that we see. You know, we talk a lot about how procurement and contract management is really a top management challenge for HUD. It's something we hear from the principals. It's something we reflect every year in our reports. The stakeholders need to get aligned, whether that's the Office of CIO or CPD on the prioritization of this project. I think that's happened. We see improvement in those areas within HUD in terms of CIO, CFO, what we call kind of our support components with the program areas and prioritization. They have dashboards now where they track projects. So they're making headway there. But I do think that was a play here. We had also, um, frankly, a misunderstanding about congressional approval. I mean, HUD HUD is set up in a way where, like every organization, I mean, Congress holds the purse strings. HUD has to go to Congress for authority, for approval, once they have a plan in place. And there was a slight misunderstanding in the beginning. They thought that this was something that had they had to run past Congress. As it turns out, HUD does have about 10 percent flexibility in its funding to play with. I'm sure they'd like more. I'm sure Congress uh, likes having the oversight that they do. Anyway, it was with below the threshold. So they didn't have to have the congressional approval, but that did hold things up for a little bit. But I think we're back on track. Well, is HUD's plan still current? Because between 2017 and now, this whole notion of cloud computing has really blown up in the federal government. Maybe the portal should be a cloud facility instead of a mm. server that HUD is operating. I think that'd be a good question for the CIO of HUD. And, <laughs> and if you don't ask it, Tom, maybe I should. Maybe I should ask that question. I don't know. We'll see. You know, we're going to be monitoring well, We can get this. each other in trouble. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but we'll be monitoring this to see how effective it is and whether it makes sense from a technology standpoint as well. And your recommendations in the meantime. So the first recommendation we made was more data. Look, this tool is only going to be as effective as the data in it, right? And HUD wants the grantees to have 
current data. Right now, the plan is uh, set up with only one program at FEMA. Now, it's the largest program, so it's bound to be helpful. You know, to HUD's point, adding data to this tool is going to take time. I mean, I think they said probably two to three years even for one additional data set. And that's because we're dealing with other federal components, legality. We'll have to have legal review from multiple agencies. We're dealing with funding to complete a project like that. So that's something that is somewhat out of their control, but we'd like to see continuous progress. SBA comes to mind, for example. Sure, sure. Yeah, there's certainly the question of whether or not additional data beyond FEMA is appropriate. You know, we've talked to grantees. I think most of the grantees would say this is certainly a good idea. If they can have a data warehouse where they can go for one-stop shopping, that'd be fantastic, right? So we'd love to see it come to that. But we have to recognize that some of this is simply out of HUD's control. The other recommendation we made was that they complete their own documentation. They have a project planning policy in-house, HUD does. And IT projects have to go through that policy to ensure that they are looking for risk. You know, things like the contract that we're talking about, they're spotting issues like that along the way. And frankly, it's my understanding that the documents that we're waiting on are going to require an award of the contract contract first. So that is really the key next step. Yeah. What do they say? Nothing happens till somebody buys something. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it'll happen. Certainly. And HUD generally agreed with your recommendations? Yes. They're making progress. We're waiting to hear their actual response on how they're going to accomplish these things. But they appreciated the review, I believe. And I think they yes, certainly agreed with that and are making progress in that direction. Yeah. You can only imagine what effectiveness and efficiency would be in place if this project in this system was in place given the disasters in the last 12 months. Oh, absolutely. And look, you know, in terms of ultimately why this is important, controls on the front end are the best thing, right? If you're in the standing in the shoes of a beneficiary, you might down the line be asked to pay back money. You know, talk about a financial drain, talk about an emotional hit after you've been through a disaster. It's much better to prevent these things on the front end. And I think that's what this tool will do. Ray Oliver Davis is the Inspector General of Housing and Urban Development. As always, great to have you in. Thank you so much, Tom. I very much appreciate your interest in our work. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress is on vacation and FEMA is running out of money. But first, the Justice Department false claims cases continue at a brisk pace. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The government's pursuit of false claims cases never takes a break. So far this year, recoveries have totaled just under $500 million, and they appear to be on pace for a full, solid year of about $2 billion. For more on the trends and some of the more remarkable settlements, we turn to attorney Jonathan Phillips, a partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Mr. Phillips, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. And you have done a pretty comprehensive tracking of everything going on in whistle. Well, I should say not just whistleblower cases, but all false claims acts this year. Review what you've seen so far in terms of the pace of settlements. And it sounds like a lot more comes in in the second half of the year than the first. I think that's right. So far in 2023, it's tracking certainly what we saw in 2022 and over the last 10 to 12 years in False Claims Act recoveries. I think you're right. The latter half of the year tends to have more announced settlements, I think partly because of the close of the federal fiscal year in the fall. And so a lot of settlements often are announced around that time. So while there's you know around 500 million that have been announced in FCA recoveries to date this year, that tracks with last year when the total for the years you mentioned was around two billion. 
And how much of this total settlement comes as a result of the government initiating action and how much of it, you know, proportionally is caused by people on behalf of the government, relators under key TAM cases? Pretty consistently, with one exception last year, pretty consistently, roughly 90 percent of monetary recoveries and False Claims Act actions come from cases in which either the government brought it itself or intervened in allegations by a a key TAM relator. Last year was a bit of an outlier because there was one particularly large settlement in a case brought by a relator that resulted in last year, the number being over 50%. But if you look back over 10 to 12 years, on average, the government's bringing in 90% of the recoveries in cases it pursues. And is the government getting better at this? Because like in the healthcare repayment area, Medicare, Medicaid services, they have really initiated much better tools for detecting fraud in recent years, artificial intelligence and all of these kind of trends analysis across big data that they can zero in on some of these doctor rings, you know, that rig up claims and this kind of thing. So the government's getting better at it, fair to say? I think it's certainly fair to say, and the government has made no secret about it, that they are using data analytics to identify outliers in the available billing and reimbursement data across different industries. And I think there are simply more KETAMs. You know, we've had a record number of KETAMs filed every year for the last six or seven years. It just goes up and up and up. And I think not only is the government becoming better resourced in investigating and pursuing the cases, but the relators bar, the attorneys representing relators, investigating cases to find cases to bring are being better resourced and sophisticated as well. And do we have any record or any statistic on the number of key TAM relator cases brought? What proportion of them are settled in favor of the relator? Because it is no small matter to bring a key TAM case, especially if you have to hire a lawyer. You may have to lay out a lot of money, and sometimes these things can take a decade before you actually get paid if you win. So the statistic announced by the government is they decline to intervene in approximately 80% of key TAM cases. Now, after that, it becomes a little bit fuzzy because the announced statistics kind of end there and because relators have the option to dismiss a case after the government declines. You know, it's very often the case where a relator thinks they've got a theory of liability, the government investigates it, it doesn't pan out, and the relator says, oh, I guess I was wrong, and they drop the case. And then get fired. (laughs) Well, there are laws to deal with that, uh, anti-retaliation laws, but I would say I don't think anybody would disagree that relators are settling a far lower percentage of the cases they bring compared to the cases that the government pursues. We are speaking with attorney John Phillips. He's a partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. And let's talk about the industries that produce most of the False Claim Act settlements, regardless of the source or the origin. It seems to be in that whole CMS area. Fair to say? Very fair to say. Healthcare has really dominated the share of False Claims Act recoveries really for the last 20 years. Healthcare cases have made up you know, approximately 80% of recoveries over that time period, with one exception during the Obama administration when there were a number of large cases in the mortgage-backed securities space. Other than that few-year period, all of the large settlements in the aggregate the percentage of settlements across all cases has really been made up predominantly of healthcare, pharmaceutical, medical device in sectors. And second place then would be federal contracting and contractors. 
Broadly defined, yes. So the paradigm of that is sort of the defense industry, the activity there, as you might expect, you know, kind of waxes and wanes with, you know, what our engagements are in the world. But really, the statute can reach anybody who does business with the government, right? So any company that sells products or provides services to the government potentially can find themselves in a False Claims Act case. And so it's not just defense, you know, any type technology companies, service providers, it really runs the gamut. In some cases, it's pretty mundane. You cite one recent case of a government contractor that double billed for nuts and bolts. I guess they figured nobody's counting nuts and bolts in the context of a bigger contractor, but somebody sharp-eyed was counting them. You add up enough nuts and bolts uh, and it can be meaningful for sure. Yeah, I think it was uh, $21.8 million. So, yeah. Well, tell us about some of the other cases you feel are noteworthy because of either exotic legal ground or because of the size in the half year just passed. The legal theory that's been generating the biggest settlements has really been cases against healthcare companies under the anti-kickback statute, which is principally a criminal statute that makes it a felony to pay money and other things of value to physicians and other healthcare providers in a position to refer business that might be reimbursed by the federal health programs. That's not a new theory at all, but just by virtue of the amount of money involved in some of the businesses that it touches, it can result in large settlements. The other areas that the government has been particularly focused on and is focused on in bringing new cases include policing the Paycheck Protection Program that was in place during the pandemic and bringing cases against applicants for PPP loans who didn't meet criteria, right? So if you're in a profession or you don't meet other eligibility criteria for getting a loan and you misrepresent your qualifications, that's a fraud that can be policed under the False Claims Act. And the government has said, even in cases that are you know, only thousands of dollars, which pale in comparison to that other cases, they're going to devote the resources to that. Another one that is very big right now, especially in the contracting space, is using the False Claims Act to enforce compliance with cybersecurity standards. That's an issue that's been in the news for technology companies and really anybody who handles data in all kinds of different ways. And the government has announced, and we have seen this, that they will use the False Claims Act to police, especially contractors who have particular requirements in providing services to the government, that they are meeting certain standards to protect government and sometimes private persons' data. Right. In other words, if they have to have a certain control in place and somebody notices it's not really there, they just told the government it's there, then you've got a false claims act. In other words, false claims don't have to be strictly monetary. They can be regulatory. That's exactly right. And the more difficult and sophisticated cases tend to turn on compliance or noncompliance with some seemingly garden variety regulation, but the violation of which could affect the government's decision to pay. So I wonder if the recent requirements that, and these will be challenged in court or maybe overturned by another administration, but the idea that government contractors have to report their climate and CO2 activities under some kind of a climate regime, someone could say, wait a minute, they said this many tons, but they didn't tell you about the grill in the patio that they use for employee picnics, all that charcoal, therefore false claim. I think it's a great point. Anytime you're making a representation to the government in connection with getting paid, 
the False Claims Act is potentially there. So, you know, contractors in that position should take care. And, you know, as we're seeing now with things like the cybersecurity cases and the PPP cases, it's not hard to imagine a near future where the government is focused on finding enforcement tools in the climate change area. And there's going to be a lot of government money paying for responses to natural disasters. We've seen cases following Hurricane Katrina, the BP oil spill, where the False Claims Act was used in those settings. And I think you're exactly right. We can expect it in the climate space as well. And by the way, which side are you guys on at Gibson Dunn? Are you on the corporate side or the whistleblower side or whatever brings the case to you? We tend to be on the defense side. Interesting. Okay. Attorney Jonathan Phillips is a partner at Gibson Dunn & Crutcher. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his mid-year summary at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress is on vacation and FEMA is running out of money. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Just because Congress is on recess, natural disasters don't stop. Now FEMA is running out of money, thanks in part to that fire in Maui. Just add it to the pile of Hill urgent issues. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And tell us more about the FEMA situation. They need money. It can only come from Congress. So what's the situation there, Mitchell? Right. Well, this was even before the disaster on the island of Maui that the FEMA director, Leanne Criswell, was telling Congress that FEMA could run out of money. And this was earlier in the summer. And that was before Maui happened, before the heavy storms in Southern California. And who knows what's going to happen throughout the hurricane season. So this is a situation that she has been uh, sending up the flare on. And really, Congress has to come up with some money to do this. The president has proposed $12 billion in disaster aid. And we'll see where that goes. Even before that was proposed, Florida Senator Marco Rubio had sought disaster aid in a separate measure, but it does seem like it's going to have to be folded into some larger legislation. But, you know, you look at the type of situation that FEMA has been dealing with in the last decade or so. Chriswell told Congress earlier this summer that FEMA in 2010 had about 100 declared disasters to support. Now, more than a decade later, that number has tripled. So they are dealing with natural disasters almost throughout the entire year, whereas before they kind of knew that certain months were going to be heavier and obviously the hurricane season is huge. So I think there will be support as there always is for disaster aid within Congress, but they're going to have to move around a lot of funding. FEMA does have a little bit more flexibility than a lot of federal agencies have. So we'll have to see what happens in the coming weeks when lawmakers get back. Yeah. So basically they're dealing with almost an average of a disaster a day. Yeah, and they're huge. Let's not forget that it was just a year ago that in Florida, that disaster with the hurricane caused more than $100 billion in damage. And while the damage has been extensive from the wildfires in Maui, that is dwarfed by what happened just a year ago. And then, as you mentioned, they're just rolling disasters one right after the other. And it really has a change for FEMA in how they respond to everything because they're dealing with something all the time. Yeah. And meanwhile, as we sit here, it's still, you know, another week until Labor Day, but they're not back until well after Labor Day. 
Right. And everything is just growing in terms of all these to-do things that the lawmakers have to get to. I mean, before they left, they still had 12 appropriation bills to get through. Now, they did get through them through all the committees in the House and the Senate, but the House only passed one bill. So even before they broke for the summer, there was a tentative agreement that we've learned about recently that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer essentially said to each other, look, we know that there's just not going to be enough time with the House not even getting back until the 12th, much less the 5th, when the Senate gets back. So they are looking at another continuing resolution, some type of stopgap spending bill. But as you would expect, a lot of members of the House Freedom Caucus and conservatives are saying that they don't want this kind of agreement. And some of them are even saying that they don't have a problem with possibly going to a shutdown. So we'll see what happens in regard to that. But it is very possible still that we could have at least a short government shutdown next month if they can't get an agreement within the House. And over the years, we've seen that when there is a, I hate to call it a shutdown because the FAA air traffic controllers keep working, law enforcement keeps working. Right. I mean, they shut the parks because, you know, that inflicts pain on the public. I think it's kind of a political statement when they do that. Our dear late friend Mike Causey used to call that close the Washington Monument syndrome. (laughs) But the fact is that a lot of the essential government operations don't cease And so it's mostly what the public does not see, people planning budgets, people planning new policies and regulations, that stops. Yeah, and I think if we do get a CR passed eventually, if there is some type of partial government shutdown, I don't think it would be that long. They would probably get a CR that would go into early December. They want to avoid that big omnibus at the end of the year because don't forget, if they fail to pass a budget by the end of December this year, then when the new year starts, the new calendar year starts, the automatic 1% spending cuts will go into effect at the start of 2024. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP, and somehow the shutdown of the CR and the general lurching nature of the way Congress manages the government seems to tie in with the idea of retention of the federal workforce because they get tired of this kind of thing because uh, they're trying to do their jobs and the people that enable it aren't doing their jobs. And this came up in the IRS context. Right. And this is especially significant when you consider that the IRS is going to need to hire more than 25,000 non-IT employees this fiscal year alone. So they are trying to really ramp up the hiring and the retention at the IRS, as a lot of other agencies are also dealing with the aging out of federal workers. And the IRS really got dinged by the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration in a recent report. They found basically that the IRS wasn't using enough of its incentives to recruit, retain, relocate employees. And their findings were pretty substantial in that they found that only 1,400 employees during a period between 2019 and fiscal 2022 actually received some kind of incentives. Now, these all totaled about $1.5 million, but it's really kind of a drop in the bucket when you look at all the number of people that the IRS has to deal with. And a lot of the money, frankly, went to to people during the COVID-19, during the pandemic, when they were just trying to get IRS employees back into the office. So again, this is a continuing challenge, as you know, with the federal government trying to retain federal workers, get younger workers into the federal government. 
Yeah, and they're also trying to get retirees back into the IRS. And this is something you see agencies do, not just the IRS, but often because they have the expertise that's needed. It must be strange coming back after retiring and after being away otherwise during the pandemic. I guess you'd go into your office and say, I wonder if that piece of gum is still on the same <laughs> bottom of the same table that was there before. Bringing back that institutional knowledge. But yeah, it is a kind of a strange topsy-turvy world for a lot of federal workers when you do come back from retirement. And now that we've seen, not unexpectedly, but the dramatic savagery in the way that Vladimir Putin has seemingly dispatched Prigozhin there over there in that plane shoot down, has that changed anyone's thinking, I guess because they're not in session, it's hard to tell, on the balking for funding of Ukraine, which could also complicate the budget process. I think it does have an effect. I mean, there's no question that everyone pretty much on the Hill, except for the sharpest critics of funding for Ukraine, know that Putin, this is the type of thing that he does. He basically kills his opponents. And it may have taken a while, but he saw that uprising a few months ago. And clearly some type of action here has been taken. And it's interesting that right as that happened, there was actually a bipartisan group of senators visiting with the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky an interesting trio of South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, very different politically, and then Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal, who has worked with Senator Graham on a variety of issues. But this shows that there are people that are really serious about getting Ukraine more funding. The president has requested a total of $24 billion, and more than half of that would be specific to military assistance. I think you're going to continue to see that tug of war between the far right in the House, a lot of people very critical of sending money to Ukraine and the more institutional interests, if you will, in the Senate as well as uh, more moderates in the House. And I think that they will eventually come up with more money with Ukraine. We'll just have to see whether or not it's going to be folded again into this big stopgap measure or if it can somehow be separated in a separate measure, which I think is probably unlikely. Well, one thing at least we know, there's one less SOB in Russia, but we still have the big one in place. (laughs) That's right. A lot of people forget that Prigozhin was actually meant in connection with the impeachment proceedings going way back to Ukraine and the meddling of Russians in the U.S. election. Uh, that involved allegedly Prigozhin, and he was technically a fugitive in connection with uh, an investigation here in the U.S. Yeah, well, you know, it's like one big mafia over there in some ways. And listen, I wanted to ask you, too, that you had a discussion with someone who is often in the background, but not always, and that is the Senate chaplain Barry Black. And yes. he's celebrating 20 years on the job now. That's right. 20 consecutive years in the job. And he is such an interesting and wonderful person to speak with. I was lucky enough to speak with him up in his office complex, which, by the way, has a portal that looks out onto the National Mall. It's one of the most beautiful views from the U.S. Capitol. And I've been told that that is the only portal window that will actually open to the mall. So that's kind of an interesting thing. But as far as the Reverend Barry Black, he is interesting in some many ways. He has at times gotten attention for some of the prayers that he's had at the outset of the Senate. Of course, he comes in every morning and does that. Many years ago, it was when he was decrying the madness of a government shutdown. And he said, I asked him, how do you decide when to change up your prayer? And he said, in the instance of earlier this year, when there was a fatal shooting at the Nashville Church School, he said he was literally listening to WTOP, did not know about it. And in a moment's notice, he 
he changed his prayer entirely. And that's when he made a very attention-getting prayer, talking about essentially that prayers were not enough, that thoughts and prayers were not enough in an instance like this. And he says he kind of gets a, a signal. He calls it a text message from a higher power that he knows that he has to change things. And I also asked him about people losing faith, not necessarily religiously, but faith in federal government and what he thinks about that. And it was very interesting. He led me back to uh, Romans and the Bible. And, and essentially, there's a passage there where it says, obey the government for God is the one who has put it there. And he went on to explain that he thinks that there is a theological case to be made for government and government leaders. So he's a strong defender of, of the government and for respecting the leaders of the government. And, you know, we've talked many times about the fact that a lot of federal workers don't feel that they get the respect that they should get for trying to do the people's work. And he is really a strong defender of the federal government and federal workers. Yeah, it even predates that. I would say the Book of Kings is a good place to start, too, exactly. how it all worked. All right. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Some Postal Service mail carriers want to leave their union after most of them saw pay cuts this past spring. A grassroots network of rural carriers is collecting signatures from their co-workers in the hopes of decertifying the National Rural Letter Carriers Association. Carriers say the union didn't do enough to keep USPS from implementing this new pay system that's been in the works for more than a decade. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has all of this for us. And let's begin with why the rural carriers are looking for a different union what happened with that pay system, Jory? So this new system that went into place this spring, the Rural Route Evaluated Compensation System, or RECS, this is something that has been coming for a while. This is at least a decade in the works. It's the product of arbitration between the union and the Postal Service. What this really translated into, once it went into effect, was a pay cut for two-thirds of rural carrier employees and some severe cuts. This is something that obviously upset rural carriers. They knew it was coming, but the impact was immediate for them. Got it. So they're looking for a different union they think can do what then? Well, they think that the union didn't do enough to uh, prevent the system from going into place. It's been delayed, delayed, delayed because of some of the underlying data that was feeding into this new system that affected people's pay. And they said that the union should have kept delaying this, pushing back against the Postal Service from implementing this. The level of cuts that we're seeing from rural carriers here are pretty severe. I've spoken to a number of carriers who have seen $10,000 cuts, $15,000 cuts. I spoke with Kim Farmer, one of the people leading this decertification effort. She's a rural carrier in Palm Beach, Florida. She says that she's now working six days a week under this REC system to make the same amount of money she was making previously for five days. The union, they don't really stand up for you. And like I said, I do understand the post office does have to run, but we're paying for the union to do something. And if they can't figure it out, hire people and say, what do you think could be done to change this around instead of using their own ideas? Because they're not very good. My question is, if they're working longer for the same money or working the same amount for less money, this is based on the volume of what they deliver? Is rural carrying somehow different from urban carrying? Yeah, it's a very convoluted system. I can give you the high overview here. Unlike city carriers, rural carriers are paid by the route that they deliver, and that route gets evaluated in certain increments every couple of years. This new system, it factors into a couple of things. Mail volume is one of 
of them and mail volume has been on the decline. And that's what people say contributes to this cut in pay. But there's other things factored in here. There are some scans that carriers have to factor into when they deliver mail and packages, things that do have a barcode, and that time to delivery also feeds into things. Interesting. Yeah. So it's fundamentally a different job than is done in the cities. You might have a house every 50 feet or something, a mailbox or 100 feet. This is you could drive down and there's a mailbox every half mile or something. I think the key word here is density, Tom, that, you know, there's a considerable drive for some rural carriers depending, you know, from door to door, depending on what their route looks like. Yeah, and sometimes it's not even an official postal vehicle. You see somebody's old beat up Sienna, you know, with a postal sign stuck on it. Now, getting back to this decertification push that we heard about, how far along are they and do they have the uh, the clout to do it? Well, the leaders behind this initiative that I spoke to, uh, they said they've gathered as of earlier this month, 7,400 signatures. Now, that's a ways away from their ultimate goal. They would need about 30% of the overall bargaining unit to submit these signatures, and these are being collected on physical cards. So this would translate into about just under 40,000 employees saying yes to this effort. If they get to that point, they would submit all these signatures to the National Labor Relations Board. They would verify those signatures, make sure everything's above board, and then they would hold an election of every rural carrier under the bargaining unit. And if a majority of the votes cast are in favor of keeping the union, the union will stay. Otherwise, they will decertify the union and try to find another one. Yeah, I was going to say, so that means that uh, they would not have a union until they certified a new one. This is just the decertification of the existing union. And are there any alternative unions that are looking good to them? I'm hearing from the people behind this push that they are looking to join the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. I did reach out to the Teamsters about this. They said they have not been in talks with the rural carriers about this, and that's an important thing to bring up. So there's no formal deal in place here. This is still the rural carriers, in some sense, shopping around for alternative unions. And again, let's get back to the National Rural Letter Carriers Association itself. You spoke to the president there. What did he have to say? Yeah, I spoke with uh, the NRLCA president, Don Mastin. He took office earlier this month. He said that this is something that rural carriers should seriously think about, not throw the baby out with the bathwater. He understands that employees are upset about all of this, but he did want to say that the union is more than 100 years old. They have a really long history with rural carriers, and they doubt that an alternative union will have the same level of protections for rural employees, particularly when it comes to job security. If the union was not there, the Postal Service could just simply make everybody at-will employees and get rid of them. So there are a lot of negative things that individuals aren't looking at. But then there is this new pay system that came and gave lots of people pay cuts. What do they say about that? Mastin said that, you know, ultimately this is a bell curve you got to look at here, that there are some outliers that are seeing those really severe pay cuts that I mentioned earlier. There are some people who did, in fact, see higher rates of pay as a result of this new system. They are out there. Uh, he said the vast majority of people, though, the people in the middle of that bell curve, real minimal changes one way or another. And he says that this just reflects an unfortunate reality, which is that first-class mail volume has been going down precipitously and that there's no expectation that's going to change. We told people from the beginning of this that there were, there were going to be new winners and new losers, a, a redistribution of the hours. But that bell curve, when people say that everybody lost 
tremendous amounts of time and money. That's not an accurate statement. And that's Don Mastin, who is the president of the National Rural Letter Carriers Association. All right. So it's up in the air at this point. One thing to point out here, there is a bit of a deadline that rural carriers do face. They would need by the end of the calendar year in December to get all of those signatures. The reason why is because they need to have this decertification effort locked into place when a new contract would be up, and that would be in spring of next year. So that one thing to keep in mind. A long rural road ahead. Yes. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.